Listen to this scripture. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. I want to talk for a few moments about preaching and self-discovery. Preaching and self-discovery. I believe that all preaching starts with the contextual reality of the preacher, him or herself. That you can never separate yourself from your context and your identity. I am an African-American male in 2023, primarily responsible for preaching in the inner city of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, that is dominated in population by African-Americans in a time and season when so many things are happening, when there's so much change and flux in the world. I am married, 56, and the father of one. Trust me when I tell you, all of that impinges on my sermonic creation and presentation, and I can never divorce myself from it. I am the father of one daughter. I have no sons. That has an impact. I am a three-degree recipient. That has an impact. I have no health challenges, thank God. That has an impact. I am the product of divorced parents. That has an impact. My father has early dementia. My mother has had 19 surgeries, four on the brain. That has an impact. Every sermon I preach is the result of how all of that has been um, synergized, is probably the best word, synergized in my life and my personality. Am I making any sense? You have to be in tune with who you are as it relates to your preaching. We could spend all day talking about the mechanics of preaching identifying text, doing your exegetical work, coming up with your outline. I use tension and how to create, how to, how to investigate and extract material from the tension that the text introduces us to. How does that presentation sound? To whom are you preaching? Exegeting the text and the culture. We could do all of those mechanical things. But aside from you knowing who you are and what you bring in terms of who you are to the moment, all of those things will be of lesser importance. You put a person who doesn't know who he or she is to a preaching moment, and what you will hear is a schizophrenic, multi-personality presentation. They will be whoever is popular to them at the time. It's what old preachers used to call finding your voice, getting to a place in life where you find your voice. I could amuse you by all the people I was between age 17 and 22. And it was everybody who influenced me. And then when I started pastoring and that sermon had to be created every seven days, and over the course of time, those voices started becoming more distant and who I was at the core became more prominent. And I didn't like everything I was at the core. And it's taken years of self-discovery to become comfortable 
with my voice in any setting. And it's what Bill Jones, my doctoral professor, used to say, when you can mature to a place where your sermons are at home in more places than not. So let's look for a moment about, from a historical perspective, let's look at what leadership has morphed into over the centuries. A historic, you might want to write, write this down as you do self-examination later on. Historical definitions of leaders that in, include preachers and pastors as well. In early ancient Greece and Rome, leaders were associated with the concept of heroism. Leaders were associated with the concept of heroism. It's what Dr. Brown was cautioning us against yesterday that was so relevant and fresh. You can't be the hero shero in every sermon because you give people a false hope that all of their lives will be a win, W-I-N. And we know, don't we, that you're not going to go through life with all wins, right? And you distance yourself from people because you never have any losses. And all they are managing is losses. So now you're too distant, which makes your sometimes your sermons irrelevant for them. It's not real for them. Because the tension they're living with is never tension you describe. So these individuals in early ancient Greece and Rome were individuals of exceptional strength, courage, and wisdom. And they led their communities in times of crisis. And ancient Rome leaders were seen as figures embodying strength and virtue. And that's why they were then known under the tags of things like commander. It's what we still see in movies and cinema, where whoever is the central star starts out in the normality of his or her context, they engage a crisis and are pulled away from that context. They have a big battle out of which they emerge victorious and they come back to the context with this new strength and save the community. It's all Hollywood does, but it's also the early content of the Old Testament, isn't it? Abraham, leave your family and go to a place that I will show you. Moses has to leave Egypt, the place of his crime, and he goes to the backside of a hill. And over those years, he's developed and matured so that God can reinsert him into the context. And while he's away, he goes through these iterations of self-discovery so that when he comes back, now he realizes liberation is not based upon killing one person at a time. It's based upon freeing and liberating a mass of people from those who are oppressing. So that was early ancient Rome. Then we, we moved to a feudal system. And in the feudal system, which is that middle medieval period about the ninth century, leadership is primarily based on hierarchical structure. And that's where we get the dominance of kings and lords, feudal lords. It is how the British monarchy is still constructed today, right? That you're born into it. Doesn't matter your competencies. Doesn't matter your capacities. Doesn't matter your intellect. You are born in to leadership. And in this hierarchical structure, the black church suffers from this even to this day. In this hierarchical structure, you're going to be a deacon because your daddy was one. Doesn't matter that you have not developed any spiritual maturation. Your daddy was always a good deacon here. 
long as you come here, you're going to be a deacon. It's what we're doing now that we have to wrestle with, with pastoral succession, where senior pastors are naming descendants as senior pastors, not always competent, not always carrying capacity, not even always spiritual, but they're inheriting things because of this hierarchical structure. Am I making any sense? The third iteration was the Industrial Revolution. And when we get to the Industrial Revolution, leadership is associated with managerial skills and efficiency. This is how I engage ministry. It's how I entered ministry at 17. It was how skilled and competent are you at managing and leading? So we heard words that dominated like vision casting and managing square footage and acreages and all those kind of things. A new iteration that has come to vogue in my ministry is what they call transformational leadership. That's a 20th century phenomenon. In transformational leadership, this approach emphasizes inspiring and motivating followers. Now, if we were to do a deep dive in this, if I was doing a homiletics class and we were to do a deep dive on this, I would say, this is when we saw the decline of theology, the decline of doctrine, and when theology and doctrine gave way to inspiring and motivating, it's where one dominant pastor was asked, why is there not a lot of theology in your sermons? And the response was, people don't come to church for theology. They come for inspiration. I don't even know why the two cannot be synergized. That's a whole nother discussion. So where, where there was the dominance of inspiration and motivation to the declination of theology and doctrine, we have now inherited. We sowed to the wind, and now we are reaping the whirlwind. Where many people are measuring the weight of a ministry by false measurements. You ask them what makes them go to a certain church, it's because they have a Starbucks in the outer veranda. You can dress casual. They play country music or R&B or trap after the service. We have a picnic every Sunday after the benediction. In our small groups, we're doing bourbon and cigars. And none of these things that I have mentioned have I said anything about becoming a devoted disciple of Jesus Christ or soul winning in my neighborhood or my community. I hope y'all are hearing me. Because when I, and as I segue to talk about preaching, this impacts how you preach. Right? So that was transformational leadership. What followed transformational leadership was then servant leadership, second half of the 20th century. And when we talk about servant leadership, this is popularized by a focus on serving the needs of others, but it was with a prioritization of their well-being. So people were evaluating churches on their social outreach. How many are we feeding? How many are we offering therapy to? How many people are we housing? 
Unfortunately, we've seen over the last several years leadership characterized by these qualities that I've mentioned, and in them is something I think is drastically missing. And I'm theorizing this along with some scholars who I've read who are beginning to think about this as well. And it is the absence of a moral compass. And what we've seen in the most recent elections, what we see in this very vitriolic conversational exchange, both in person and in social media. The rules of engagement have changed. You're talking about presidential elections where things like policies and legislation are absent. And what is present is who can out embarrass the other. And the last of the Mohicans, we will support. Right? I laugh sometimes because when I'm listening to debates, I want to ask, I want to jump through the phone or jump through the TV rather to ask the commentator, just ask the candidate to explain to us how you turn an idea into law. Ask them what is their basic understanding of the Constitution. I mean, something simple. Ask them to give us as much as they can remember of the preamble. I mean, it's a shame we have to come back to that. But think about it. In the last several elections, we have not heard constructive debate about the things that are now making us fragile as a country. Right? So it's this absence of a moral compass. Why is that? Because what we have not focused on in all the iterations that I've given you, we have not focused on self-discovery. And as I've ruminated about my own ministry and my leadership, as I think I'm in this last third in terms of a professional pastoral pulpit career, I started thinking about what has really been the foundation to bring strength to my ministry if strength is how some would describe it. And if I were to provide an answer to that, I would say it is not how my sermons may have morphed. It is not what Mount Aaron has been able to do. It is not the ministry's outreach. The strength that I bring in terms of pastoral ministry now is my congregation has watched me self-discover. And my self-discovery has provided theological content and exegetical lens of interpretation that has grown a people, many of whom have listened essentially to the same story for 26 years. So when folks say, how do you stay relevant? Keep discovering you, right? So leaders who have done the painful but necessary introspective work to know who they are, their gifts, their vulnerabilities, their mission, their ministry, their needs, their triggers, and the list could go on and on infinitum. And it's why Jesus said, and I read this in the beginning, it's why Jesus said, follow me, and I'm going to help you to self-discover that you are not fishers of fish. You are fishers of men. And what we see in the early disciples, who later described as apostles, who become the progenitors of the church, what we see is not only the things they do in terms of construction of the spread of Christianity, we also see 
their moments of self-discovery. We see their maturation process. Everything from Paul who pushes away John Mark and then later on he comes back as he's matured in ministry and he says, grab my, my parchment and bring my materials. Oh, and get John Mark for me. That's a moment of heightened awareness, right? So what would you think would be the condition of an environment with a leader who doesn't know him or herself? And we can put this in terms of preaching. How do you think a sermon sounds when the preacher does not know him or herself? That's a, is this working? Okay, because that was a question. Yeah. Like everybody that they've heard. And, and when you hear a sermon from a person who has not done the painful work of self-discovery, you can tell it. In fact, for those of us who, who are, we don't just study preaching, we're addicted to preaching. We talk about preaching. Some people would sit around us no matter where we are and they would go, oh my God, I cannot sit with you guys. All you do all the time is talk about preaching. Now, I didn't say talk about preachers, but talk about preaching because we don't just study it, we're addicted to it. When certain names come up, at this stage in my life, if I've heard them a couple times, I could tell you how many people are in them. What's your name? Legion, for we are many. I can say, yep, I hear a little A. Lewis Patterson. I hear a little Prethia Hall Wynn. I, I hear a little H.B. Uh, Hicks. I hear a little Charles Booth. I could hear all of that in the people that I hear unless they have self-discovered. I can also listen to a person's sermon and say, that's a person who has done hard introspective work. They're comfortable with their style. They're comfortable with their content. They own their apologetics. They have found a lane sermonically, and they are not ashamed to stay in that lane, right? I'm very clear. I have spent my whole preaching career trying to be a hooper. Now, I mean, I've, I've stood in the mirror in practice. I've been in the car in practice. I play golf with guys who don't even know anything about preaching, and they'll hear me while I'm trying to go find my ball uh, where it should not have been. They'll hear me sometimes, oh, God. Because I've been practicing all my life, and every time I stand to try to launch out there, it's as if God's saying, no, you know that, ain't you? Be comfortably aware of who you are, right? So when we talk about preaching, I want to give you because I'm literally almost already out of time. I want to I wanna set one tension point for our conversation, and we'll open for conversation and questions. Here's what I want you to think about, because Jerry Carter is Ph.D. in preaching, and I, I, I totally surrender to his ability to work mechanics and some of the details that come with homiletical construction. What would you think if I lived in an apartment and you walked into it, and this is what, the environment kind of looked like. I had throw pillars on the floor. I had, in what was designated the dining room area, I had two candles and candelabras on the floor and placemats and china around, no table. I had wine glasses over in the corner. You walked into my bedroom and I had um, a night lamp on the floor. I had pictures still arranged around the walls. I had each room painted slightly different. Please follow the image. 
as you were walking around touring this palatial space that I was so proud to show you, what would you be thinking of? How? Okay, could be that I'm a minimalist. Thank you for being so positive. What would some of the rest of you be thinking of? Why, why has the decorator not been there yet? Okay. Anybody else? Where's the, where's the furniture? Who said that? All right, where's the furniture? Because what I am showing off to you are the accents. Much of contemporary preaching today is superlative grasp on accents and very little functional structure. And just as I could live in an apartment with throw pillars but no sofa, a nightstand and lamp with no bed, it shows a inversion of priorities. Do you follow what I'm saying to you? It shows an inversion of priorities. I have spent my money buying all the accents and have not painstakingly spent any time buying the necessities. In my estimation, modern preaching is the prowess of accents and very little concentration on the necessities. Staging, social media, sound, style, illustrations, metaphors, voice, hitch, drama, dress, time, all of these things. And we give so much time to accents, not just in terms of preaching, but even in terms of how church functions. Pull up on the parking lot, and the most important thing we want to see is a baby bounce section because it says we focus on youth and children. And when we walk in, we want you to be able to have some Starbucks and a donut because it's about your physical needs, accents. And we market that to the negation of necessities. As a result of that, many people are evaluating preaching based upon the superlative nature of the accents. And very little measurement of the necessities. I will not recapitulate what Dr. Brown talked about on yesterday because it, it needs no commentary attached to it. But at the end of the day, your body of work, your body of homiletical work, if described by others, they would describe it how? 
That's what you want to be asking yourself. When people evaluate my sermonic body of work, what will they say about my preaching? I would hope that if you ask any member of Mount Ararat, what are basic foundational sofa, bed, kitchen table, what are the, the necessities that are in the apartment of William Curtis's preaching, I would hope they would say that against whatever was culturally popular, he stayed committed to grounded theology, creatively shaped doctrine, and a wedding of himself to biblical exegesis. And I just gave you three things that are very important for preaching, right? H. Grady Davis says every sermon must start in the Bible. It must stay in the Bible. It must finish in the Bible. And that if we use his diamond metaphor, that we take that text and we turn it in its varied aspects and we are revealing to the congregation how when light is shined on it, where brilliance can be appreciated. And that we don't need to wander too far outside of that in order to have sound ground sermonic presentation. You should ask yourself also, what is the aim of my preaching? Because that reveals motivation. If the aim is to entertain, that says one thing about how you would treat a text. If the aim is to inform, that says something different about how you would treat a text. If the aim is to energize, if the aim is to organize, and there are times when all of those are important, but you have to be aware of them so that you can manage and be a faithful steward of them, particularly in pastoral ministry when people are hearing your sermon every single week. The point I want to make very simply is, for this gathering, don't become addicted to accents. Stay committed to the necessities of homiletical presentation which is sound, ground, exegetical work where the, the passage begs you not to ignore it. Why? Because I've spent enough time reading the scripture, not always searching for a sermon, but because it's what I do, I want to be a person who is always giving myself to scripture. And as I'm giving myself to scripture devotionally and leisurely, as I'm ruminating on it while I'm doing anything else I'm doing during the course of the day, there are passages that say, hey, please preach me. And what do I do when that passage says that? I go back and I spend a little more time on it now. And now I'm starting to think about who wrote it and what was their intent to the people they wrote it to. And what was the political environment and what was going on and how was religion and spirituality viewed at the time and who were the central characters and what was God really trying to say in that season, that era, in that space to those people? Which character am I ruminating with? Who this week am I more like? Am I more like the prodigal who left or am I more like the prodigal who stayed? Am I more like the father who deals with the prodigal who stayed at home 
whose personality I can clearly discern? Or am I more like the father who treats the son who left as if he's dead? And upon his return, am I the father who runs out to the field to place a kiss upon his neck and to call back and say, kill the fatted calf, grab the ring and the robe, this my son was dead and is now alive? Or am I the father who's sitting on the porch having to explain to the entitled child, you've had everything that I own all your life, but this your brother was lost and now he's found. And where is God in relationship to me based on that text this week? Do you follow what I'm saying? All in the same text. Are you quiet because you're listening or confused? I just want to make sure. You can't always tell by look, right? So when you think about what constitutes a great sermon or what constitutes an effective sermon, all of these things become important. I've done my exegetical work. Now, how am I laying this out? Because every character can't make it into every sermon. Every issue can't make it into every sermon. Every theme that emerges from the text can't make it into every sermon. Or your congregation will become tantamount to a child that you are feeding everything they like in the same meal. And what happens when you do that? The system regurgitates it, right? And if you are in pastoral ministry, guess what, my brother, my sister? They will be there next week. So you don't have to preach the whole counsel of God in every sermon. (laughs) You could take pieces and do deeper work rather than wider work, right? And then the final thing I would say with regard to preaching, and I'll open up for us to have some discussion. The final thing that I would say with regard to preaching is you want your preaching to be unpredictable. And the way I describe unpredictability is this way. If the person in the pew says, Reverend, I see where you're going, you are not unpredictable. That's a simple way of illustrating that. I see where you're going. No, you shouldn't see where I'm going. This trip is imaginative, right? Somebody came in this morning and said, uh, good sermon last night, Reverend. I didn't know where you were going when you started. Well, that, that was a compliment because I'm taking you on a journey. And that journey should end with you having to make a decision that I either want to know Christ as Savior, I want to get close to him as a disciple, I want to share him as a witness.